Good morning and welcome to Keystone. You might have noticed things look a little different. I mean, you're probably not watching this in the Keystone building. That's because we are doing a virtual service this Sunday. And that's because, hey, it's July 4th weekend and we just wanted to give some rest and give a big thank you to all of our volunteers who not only bring life to the Sunday mornings here at church, but bring life all throughout our week and to our incredible staff as well. Hopefully this is a much needed break with full of rest and good vibes. And with it being July 4th, it should be full of hot dogs, hamburgers, family, friends, campgrounds, and fireworks. So we hope it's been a good weekend so far. To our Keystone friends that are watching, thanks for doing something a little bit different. And if this is your first time uh, checking out Keystone, whether you're watching or listening to this on podcast, I hope it's a really encouraging morning for you. We're in a cool series called Who is God? And this is just the second week of the series. We're exploring how God revealed his character, revealed his heart to people past and present, to the ancient Israelites and to us today. It's honestly kind of an ambitious series because we're going all over the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament. But in these first few weeks, this week included, we're going to explore how God disclosed himself to the ancient people of Israel, to the nation of Israel, in what we've referred to today as the Ten Commandments. But I want to address the series, the, the, the theme of the series head on. The question, who is God, is so critically important to the way that we live our day-to-day lives. I mean, I have a lot of friends who wouldn't step inside a church, even a church like Keystone. But these friends are still open to the idea of a God, or maybe even the idea of the God of Christianity. But I think the problem is they've been handed the, this, this image of God that doesn't really align with the true heart and nature of God who we see through scripture. I mean, the image of God that a lot of people have been handed might look a lot like the ancient gods of Greece. You know, uh, Zeus and Athena, all kind of arguing, but looking down and using humans as their pawns. That might be an image people have of God. Or an image could even be just that strict or stern parental figure they grew up with. Maybe a dad. And that's kind of the image they have of God. Or lastly, I think a lot of us have an image of God just based off Christians, based off the followers of Jesus. And a lot of my friends, that image is based off kind of this toxic Christianity. But in my experience, most people are at least willing to entertain the idea of God existing. So the real question becomes the question of the series. Who is God? Is this God good? And is this God worth worshiping? Pastor and author A.W. Tozer puts it this way. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Essentially, what we think about God really has an effect on our day-to-day life. Not only the way we think, but the way that we act. And there's good news in this, that if you actually look under the contextually complex layers of the Bible, you'll start to see this God who is better than you could ever, ever imagine. Even more so when we allow our hearts to open up to the prospect of this true God, 
We're going to experience that divine creator, that, that loving God in our lives. So let's talk about the Bible some. Because we believe at Keystone, the Bible is this unified story that points us to Jesus. Jesus being the son of God and Jesus being the redeemer of all people. And through this full story, we actually get to experience the nature of God. So last week, to catch you up to speed, last week, Brady started the series by emphasizing that God puts relationship before rules. This was the big idea. What, with God, relationship always precedes rules. And if that's maybe a new concept to you or like feels a little bit different, definitely check out that teaching. Because it's important to remember that God cares about the state of our hearts, not just rules. Because God knows that everything flows from our hearts. Everything flows from our soul. I mean, we can fake religion and fake righteousness and fake the rules only so long until the true condition of our heart reveals itself. God, God doesn't give the first rules or these 10 commandments as a condition of relationship. God gave rules to confirm relationship. These rules, the commandments, are meant not to limit the Israelites when they are given to them, but actually to launch them into this free and purposeful existence. Think of it like, like parents. So for me, my parents set rules. And it's not by following those rules that I become their child. I mean, my identity already inherently is their child, is their son. But further, if I was to break those rules, which I mean, never happened is kind of unfathomable because if you know me, and I'm, I'm a complete angel. But if I was to break those rules, I don't stop becoming their son. My relationship with my parents is part of my identity. Just like anybody, if they have a healthy family, their identity is as part of that family, not because they followed the rules. That's just like for Israel. They're already in relationship with God. So these rules are meant to set them free and give them purpose. So we're going to dive into where we're going today. We are jumping into the Ten Commandments, and we're going to start with the first two. That's what everything is going to hinge on today. So you can find this in the book of Exodus. It's in the Old Testament um, in any Bible, and we're going to be using mostly the NIV translation today. So Exodus, uh, the Ten Commandments start this way, and this is God speaking. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And a, a kind of a very literal translation of the, the Hebrew here would go like this. You shall have no other gods beyond me or in addition to me. Essentially what God is saying is I want to be your one and only God. Now it's critical for us today to remember that these 10 commandments are directed to and for the Israelites. And ancient cultures were saturated in the worship of other gods. I mean, for Israel, uh, God wants them to shake this old identity as Egyptian slaves because they spent hundreds of years in slavery under Egypt, and God brought them out of Egypt into something new. So God wants to shake them of this Egyptian culture and rid them of any affinity to other gods. So when God gives this first commandment to have no other gods beyond or in addition to him, it's historically unprecedented. I mean, kind of across, across the globe and especially for these Israelites. Because God wants Israel to depend on this 
rescuing God exclusively for everything. And it's important to remember that God just doesn't want to be their rescuer. He doesn't just want to be identified as the God that brought them out of Egypt. He also wants to be their provider. God wants to be their shelter. God wants to be guide. And God wants to be the center of their entire lives and culture. This first commandment, I think, really is meant to put all of the other commandments and all of the other rules in focus. Because this first commandment is really about one essential question— Will you trust me and only me? And this isn't blind trust because through Exodus, through the Exodus story, God has put on display the fullness of his character to the Israelites. He has made himself known and he has made his purposes known to them. So for us today, we know that as Christ because God put on display the fullness of his character through Jesus. What's cool about this is we have everything we need to know to make a decision about God. We have everything we need to know to trust or distrust God. So that's commandment number one. The second commandment pushes even more against the Israelites' cultural norm. It goes like this, and you kind of have to hang with me a little bit more in this one. Exodus 20 verse 4 says this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any image of what? is in the skies above, on the land below, or in the water under the land. So to simplify it all, this is just saying, don't make anything that is meant to represent God because, and this is big for today's teaching, God is beyond image. God is beyond image. This is going to be a huge theme for today's teaching. For the Israelites, I mean, this opposed everything of what it meant to worship God. I mean, again, for this culture, images of God were everywhere. Often, uh, ancient people would have like a a talisman or a charm that they would carry around that that displayed some sort of God. And in times of need, they'd pull out this charm, this talisman, and they'd go, all right, like, God, whatever God, I need it to rain, or whatever God, I need uh, fertility for my crops. And and then they'd put the charm away. Right? The, the reality is they could just put God back in their pocket. That's counterintuitive to the nature of the Israelite God, to the nature of this God above all other gods. We have to remember, nothing created can ever match the creator. God wants us to know you can't put limits on God. So let's, let's kind of, the, the interesting thing about these Ten Commandments is they kind of get tested by the Israelites. And actually, this second command is so difficult for the Israelites that before the covenant and the Ten Commandments can even be like the deal sealed, they break it. So let me give you a little bit of context, and we'll jump into some story, and we'll come back to those commandments. So the Lord has brought the Israelites out of Egypt, and at this place called Mount Sinai. And he's giving them the Ten Commandments, and he's giving them the covenant. And they're kind of at the end of this deal, where the Israelite people have said, everything that God has said, this sounds good. All of these rules, this sounds good. This relationship, we want to seal the deal. We want to get married to God. This feels good. So Moses, and Moses is the character that has led the Egyptians, that has um, been kind of the mediator between, uh, I mean, led the, the Israelites, has been the mediator between the Israelites and God. 
Moses goes up to affirm with God that the people want to adopt the commandments and want to adopt the rules in the covenant. But what happens is Moses is up there for what the Bible says is 40 days and 40 nights. And here's kind of an interesting nugget for you. When you read 40 days and 40 nights, there's a lot of scholars that believe, yes, that might be a specific amount of time, but it could also just mean a long time, right? So no matter what, during this long time, these 40 days and 40 nights, the Israelites start to have this change of heart. It's almost as if, uh, it's almost as if this sinful, intuitive nature kicks in. And that narrative starts in Exodus 32. Now we're going to throw it up on the screens. So we'll have it really big so you can read it. I'm going to read it here in my Bible. Um, so we're in Exodus 32. Um, and this is going to be a really weird story, but I think one that's going to prove how difficult this is, not only for the Israelites, but it's something that can end up being difficult for us. So uh, it says this in Exodus 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron, just for a little bit of context, this is Moses' Moses's brother, kind of a, a right-hand a right man, the second in command. So they brought all the gold to Aaron, and he took this from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. Hang on to that. That image is important. And he said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out up from the land of Egypt. Now this is what's crazy. And this is like the small detail you have to notice here. This is your God. That little nugget right there. Notice the building of the golden calf isn't replacing God, it's representing God. It's running counter to the second commandment. What it's actually communicating is the people want to follow God, but they want to do it on their own terms. And this is another fascinating contextual part of this. At the beginning of all this, as the covenant and the commandments were being um, like figured out and and then Moses is the one mediating these commandments, God had actually originally invited the whole nation to participate, not just to send Moses to go do it, but that they would all be part of it. You can find it in Exodus 20, 18, and 21. But despite God's relationship with them, despite God's miraculous actions of rescuing and saving them, the people still don't really understand what's going on. It's almost like they're scared and they're uncomfortable and God's giving the, them these categories for a relationship with the divine that they just don't get. So they settle into what's comfortable and they decide to conform God into what they want. And that's the image of the golden calf. Now get this, let's sum all this story up here. The golden calf speaks to how the Israelites and I think humanity tries to domesticate God and worship God on our own terms. Let me say that again. The golden calf speaks to how the Israelites as humanity try to domesticate God 
and worship God on their own terms and on our own terms. So when we think of the golden calf, I actually have an image that I all want us to see because I think it speaks directly to the story and beyond. It's by an artist called Scott the Painter, and it looks like this. So here's the image here. Here you have the golden calf. You have its head having been sliced off, a neck that has actually the shape of a heart, and on the base of the golden calf, for anyone that can't see the image, there's actually the letters CTRL or control. Now the reason I love this image so much is I think that the golden calf story speaks to how we've struggled with trusting God. I think since the Garden of Eden, the whole story of humanity is a story of us struggling to trust God. We ultimately want control, right? It's almost like the narrative in a lot of our minds is like, God, you may be good, you may be great, you may be able to do miracles, but... And then we strive for other things, for money, followers, influence, that next endorphin hit. Anything that will make us feel like we are in control, right? But no matter what we build, no matter what we construct, no matter what we strive for, God is always going to be bigger than that. I mean, if we even look at the vastness of the universe and the, the, the scope and beautiful diversity of even just the human race, we see proof of God's bigness in the creation. Our struggle is that we strive for control, but what God desires for us is a relationship built on trust. So as you think about this image, I'm going to run you down three different phrases. Because when we limit God, and can you throw that up on the screen here for me? When we limit God... We cheapen our experience of God. The next one. When we limit God, we cheapen our own lives. And when we limit God, we limit ourselves. When we limit God, we limit ourselves. And then can you go back to that, that calf image real quick for me? One of the things that I like about that this is God doesn't want us to have these, which is, for me, when I look at this image, why the, the head of the cow is slain and, and showing is the red heart. Because I don't think God wants us to live a cheap or limited existence. God wants us to know the fullness of his love. Because when we limit him, when we try to put him in images, when we try to put boxes around God, we're actually limiting ourselves and limiting the joy we get to experience in this life. So this second commandment about not creating images of God or for God is rooted in the limitations of things, right? Because images are created things, like stuff, like physical things. And the thing the thing with things is that these have things have image things have edges and boundaries and rules and limitations. They can be put aside, they can be managed, they can be understood. I mean, even if you think of buildings and temples, these places have limitations. God doesn't want to stay in one place. And God doesn't have limitations, which for us is like mind-blowing and maybe a little bit scary, but I think it's really, really good. 
Uh, a first century pastor, his name's Paul. He's referenced in a lot of teachings because he wrote a lot of letters that make up the New Testament. But a first, this Paul says during this debate with philosophers in the city of Athens, Greece, um, he, says, he says it this way. He sums all this up in this really beautiful way. It's in Acts uh, chapter 17. Check out what Paul has to say to these philosophers as he's trying to get them to understand the boundless nature of God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he built all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. We live and we move and we have our being. I feel like in this passage, Paul so perfectly puts on display the boundless nature of God. God doesn't want his people to think that they can just enter and exit his presence. He's bigger than that. He's beyond image. He's beyond location. And the, the, the nature of human, humanity is honestly to compartmentalize God. I mean, we have this inherent craving as humans to, to explore and understand the mysteries around us. I mean, the, the science that has gone into exploring space or even just this, this earth itself in the deep seas. Like we have that desire to know things. Mathematics and science prove that, prove just the, the energy humans put into that. And even You've probably felt the energy from anyone trying to solve a murder mystery show or podcast, right? Like we just want to know. We want to solve mysteries. We want to understand. So naturally, when it comes to God, our predisposition is to put boundaries on the boundless. Here's a practical example. And I think this is maybe a subtle way a lot of us think. I know myself, I probably do this in some way or another. And it goes like this. God, God, you get Sundays. And you get all of the church buildings. And God, you get 91.3 WCSG. You can have all the Christian contemporary. You can have Chris Tomlin and Lauren Daigle, right? You can have that. And God, I'll come and find you when I decide I need to do the religion thing. I'll come and find you when, you know, things aren't quite working out. But, but I'm, gonna, I'm going to come and approach you but that's also counterintuitive to God because God craves relationship. That's the overarching narrative in the Bible. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is immense and mysterious and boundless, but God is intimate, invested, and loving. Check out, to, to, to pull this all together, check out what Franciscan priest and spiritual author Richard Rohr says, he says this, I love to define mystery as not, what you, as not which is unknowable, but that which is endlessly knowable. So you never get to a point where you know it all. You wouldn't, and wouldn't we assume 
that would be the nature of God, that God will always by definition be mystery, God is endlessly knowable. I'll say that again. God is endlessly knowable. And this is why it fits perfectly with us as humanity. Because how beautiful is it that in relationship with God, we can satisfy our human craving to discover. That we can satisfy our human craving to discover more. Because there is always more to discover about God. And when we're in relationship with him, there's always more to discover about ourselves. The lengths and the purposes that we can achieve in, through, and with God. God is endlessly knowable. And I really believe all people, whether they're the ones that would step into church or not, desire a God like that. So as we wrap this up, I want to ground us in those two commands and kind of make it applicable and maybe rattle some of us a little bit because that's what I do. So here's those commands again. The first, which is the framework for the other commandments and the other rules, goes like this. You shall have no other gods before me. That was the first. And the second is this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any image of what is in the skies above or the land below or in the water under the land. And even a little, it continues to say, you shall not bow down and worship them. You shall not bow down and worship those images. To sum up, God wants the exclusive trust of his people. God understands how tempted people can be when it comes to taking control. I mean, that's our origin story when you read the story of Adam and Eve. So, here's the question for you. What competes for your trust? What competes for your trust? When you're thinking about who is God and can you trust this God, what might be those other things, or maybe they could be called other gods, that are competing for your trust? Immediately for me, money comes to mind. I mean, that number in your bank account can so easily become a God because we believe with enough money, our troubles and issues will go away. But the tricky thing about money is it has its, it has its limits and it demands so much from us. I mean, when do we ever have enough money? When does the pressure of saving and watching that bank account line relent? When does the, the hustle relent, right? Like millennials, we have this thing called like hustle culture where it's like you have one job and then you're working a second job and it's like, oh, that's such a good thing. You're working so hard. But when is the time to actually enjoy life and enjoy the work you're putting in? And that's not to say that that hustle culture is inherently bad or money is inherently bad. But interestingly enough, money is the God Jesus warns us about. In one of the Gospels, or one of the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, the tax collector, a good friend of Jesus, uh, records Jesus saying this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's really, really fascinating 
and rare to find Jesus give like a direct command like that. But we can't serve both God and money because money will compete with trusting God. Could money maybe be competing for your trust? Or I have a second one. And again, uh, this might be a little rattling, but I think that's what we're supposed to do. When it comes to what competes with your trust, are you tempted to see political parties and political agendas as your Lord and Savior? Do politics compete for your trust in God? And I bring this up because I think our political affiliations can easily supersede our trust in God and so easily become a new God because political parties, they give us an identity and they give us a purpose. Two things that God is trying to do to the Israelites, two things that Jesus is trying to do for us today. But that identity and purpose that political parties give us is of a human making. Right? The idea is that we could just, if we just got the politics right, if we got the people and the places they needed to be, we could actually achieve utopia or heaven. But it really kind of neglects the reality that humanity is messy and always has been. Look at the entirety of history. Too often, too often I even find that between political parties and political agendas and political policies, there are people hurting in the cracks. The question I have for us as a church, as Keystone and a greater church, is are we embodying the full sacrificial example of God and Christ in those spaces? Could it be that our politics are competing with our trust? Right, and the difficulty here is that we're not just supposed to like remove ourselves from all these things. We still have to live with these tensions. We still have to live in the world. But so many things are going to tempt to take are going to tempt us to take control from God and say, God, we've got this. And it's not that we shouldn't be wise with our finances. And it shouldn't be that we, like, don't strive to make our communities better through governance. But we've got to trust God. And trusting God probably feels abstract to anyone listening, right? But I think trusting God should be viewed as a filter through which we make our decisions, so when we allow God to not just be our rescuer when things fall apart, when we, got, we allow God to be the fullness of his relationship with us, as the Israelites initially viewed God, when we allow God to be the Lord of Lords in all areas of our life, I think our decisions will start to be an outflow of love. And I believe this filter of trusting God will start to alleviate some of the anxiety and stress we feel. And I feel that last sentence a lot because I so badly want to trust God. I want to listen to his loving guidance in my own personal life. And I know the times when I'm not trusting God is usually the times I'm feeling the most amount of anxiety and stress. When we trust the fullness of God and we're going to explore who he is throughout this series and we're going to feel out why we should continue to trust him and why we, like if I haven't answered all those questions today, we have a whole series for it. And we have a whole lifetime for it. But when we trust God, I think we can start to experience shalom, the, the rightness in the world, the, the peace in the world. And I'll end with this. I think I can understand why people hesitate to trust God with their decisions. 
And I think it's because we've been taught, maybe directly or indirectly, that God's rules lead to a more strict and less fulfilling life. It's almost like God, we feel like God's holding out on us. And I think that is why the first sin happened in the Garden of Eden story. But here's the thing. God's trying to keep free people free. He doesn't want us to be enslaved to the things of this world. He wants us to have a free and purposeful existence. So for 3,500 years, I mean 3,500 years ago, God says something revolutionary to these people who he says are his. He tells them, don't have any other gods before me. He tells them, don't compartmentalize me. Don't put me in boundaries. Don't put me in boxes. Because he desires to impact all parts of our life. So that's 3,500 years ago. For us today, that same God wants to keep us free. And there are so many things that are going to try to bind us to this world. But those rules that God gave them back then, he's trying to do something similar for us through Christ. Because he asks followers of Jesus to surrender to his will for our lives. And that will is displayed through the character of Jesus. To start every day making decisions that align with Jesus, I think that's what it looks like to trust God. And we have to tell God, God, I don't want you to just be my rescuer. I don't want you to just be over there. I don't want you to just be a religion. I really want you to be the king of my life. I want your power and influence and purpose to affect all parts of me. Let's pray together. Dear God, I'm teaching this to a room not full of people, but I pray that you can take this message, your message, and hopefully impact people wherever they are. Lord, you have been so faithful to us. You have moved with us through history You have continued to love us through history. You have not given up on us. And Lord, we're so blessed today to not just have rules, covenants, and commandments, but to have Jesus. Because I believe in Jesus, we can know the fullness of life. God, help us discover what competes for our trust. God, help us trust you. I'll be honest, it feels abstract, but allow my trust in you to be the filter in which I decide things and the filter in which I live my life by. God, I love you and I thank you so much for loving me so intimately and infinitely more. Thank you for this day. Pray these things in the name of Jesus who makes it all possible. Amen. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week for week three of who is God.